This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 20, Cousin Returns The square in Woodridge was a sea of mud. Wagons and buggies, marred to the hub, crept sluggishly. Horses and mules, flat-eared and streaming, stood resignedly at hitching posts. The hot spell had broken with an equinoctial storm. It had rained for a week. Two men sat in the bar of the hotel, morosely regarding the weather. If it keeps up much longer, there'll be another flood. The speaker was a drummer from Indianapolis. He carried a line of household supplies, toilet goods, patent medicines, thread, needles, pins, etc. Crossroads stores were his clientele, the weather his concern. Little raccoon is over its banks, sure plays Wally with my business. The other man merely looked bored. I'm in the commercial line, explained the drummer. What's yours? People, said the other shortly and stood up, stretching his legs. He was a tall man, dressed genteely but rather funerally in black. His saturnine expression and cryptic reply led the drummer to wonder if he might be the local undertaker. He inquired respectfully. Live around here? The gentleman said. Yes. And rubbed a clear spot on the steaming window pane, as though looking for someone down the muggy street. I'm a lawyer. He added curtly. The drummer looked properly impressed, but before he could frame a suitable comment, the hotel manager, who was also clerk and occasional bartender, came in to light the lamps and announced that supper was being served in the dining room. The lawyer inquired if the hack had come up yet from the station. No, Mr. Hughes. The tone was differential. I've been keeping a watch. If you care to go into supper, I'll call you the minute the hack reaches the square. Otis Hoos nodded his acceptance of this courtesy and went into the dining room. But Drummer, to whom any companionship was mana from heaven, promptly followed. There was a sprinkling of local patronage in the hotel dining room on account of the rain, which prevented country people from getting home. As Otis Hoos looked about him, he was glad he had the drummer in tow, for the garrulous fellow would ensure him against the danger of being joined by some acquaintance. He was in no mood tonight to give more than a nod to people he knew. So when their supper of spare ribs, boiled cabbage, fried potatoes, and apple pie had been put before them, Hoos thawed sufficiently to listen to the salesman's chatter. He suddenly realized the talkative stranger might be able to give him information. You've been out through the country this month? From Bridgeport to Mullins Mill. Never missed a crossroad. Did you stop at a place called Timberley? Sure. The store just beyond the second toll gate. There's a farm by that name, too. I know, but I don't call it private homes. Peddlers do that. I'm strictly wholesale. The drummer drew himself up a bit as he reached for the salt shaker. I know the farm, though. Belongs to a man named Tomlinson. From what I hear, he's somebody in these parts. What do you mean by what you hear? 
The drummer looked cagey. Oh, nothing. Only Witherspoon. He's a Timberley storekeeper. Warned me Tomlinson was not the sort of gent you carry tales about. Tales? The lawyer's pale eyes kindled with interest. You mean there is gossip about the Tomlinsons? The drummer glanced about the room, discreetly noting the diners. They were farmers mostly, as was evidenced by their weathered faces and the gusto at which they attacked the rather fugal fare provided by the house. At a nearby table, a gaunt, loose-jointed fellow in a coonskin cap was stolidly eating his way through a double portion of everything on the bill of fare. Recognizing him, the drummer pointed him out, saying, There's the party that was doing most of talking. Otis Hoost cast an oblique glance as directed and identified Henry Shook. What sort of talking was he spreading? The damnedest cock and bull story you ever heard. The drummer dropped his voice. It seems Tomlinson's wife claims that somebody's been throwing bricks through a certain window of their house, trying to frighten her. So it is true, thought the lawyer. The letter had not exaggerated. Could Henry Shook have written it? Hardly. Some youngster with a grudge against the lady. She used to teach at the Timberley School, you know. I said it was a young one, too, agreed the drummer. But down at the store, they're saying no one is throwing the bricks. They've watched, it seems. Tomlinson's wife has reported bricks falling inside the house when there was never a soul inside to throw them. Do they question the woman's sanity? Asked House dryly. Oh no, she's considered the most intelligent female in the district. But about this window, it's a bedroom window downstairs. The drummer leaned across the table impressively. And they said it's the room in which Tomlinson's first wife died. The lawyer moistened his lips. This was what he had been waiting for. Now he knew for a fact that the letter was worth investigating. Are they trying to make something of that? Are they? Listen, you know George Tunney. Has a workshop here in Woodridge. Buggies, lat spring wagons, coffins and pumps. The lawyer's nod duly accredited this witness. Tunney's just installed a new pump in the kitchen at Timberley. And he had a lot to tell. He went so far as to say there'd been something funny about the first Miss Tomlinson's death. But I think he's just sore because Tomlinson sent to Indianapolis for her casket instead of giving him the job. The drummer grinned at this professional peak on the part of local industry. But there's others. He went on. Farmhands, boys around livery stable, plenty of people talking queer doings out at Timberley. Haven't you heard any of it? I would be the last person to hear such things, said Otis Hoos. Then he added carelessly, Was there any talk about a girl out there who's said to be a witch? Say, how did you know about that? The drummer looked startled. I never told you. That's the thing Witherspoon warned me to keep under my hat. He said Tomlinson would stop at nothing short of violence to keep down talk about that little girl. The lawyer looked bitter. What does Tomlinson say to this superstitious talk about his dead wife? Nothing. He pays no attention to it. The hotel manager appeared. The hack is in, Mr. Hughes. Lucius Goff just went into the academy. Otis Hughes pushed back his chair without another word and hurried away. Before a waiter could clear the vacant place, Henry Shook stalked across the room, combing his mustache with thumb and finger, and slid into the chair opposite the drummer. 
Howdy, Mr. Jenkins. Remember me? Shook's my name. Heard you telling Otis Hughes about the queer pranks out at the Tomlinson's. You didn't know, did you, that you were talking to the first Mrs. Tomlinson's only surviving relative. And, with a gratified feeling of having punished the outlander for poaching on his preserves, the local news dispenser fell to upon the lawyer's untasted supper. Behind the drawn blinds of the academy, Otis Hoos faced Richard Tomlinson's three friends with much the same sense of gratification. It was Lucius Goff whom he had wanted to see, but he considered it a stroke of luck to find John Barclay and Doc Baird with him. He came immediately, almost insolently, to the point. Which one of you sent me an anonymous letter? There were three prompt, matter-of-course denials. Why should you think one of us sent it? Frowned Lucius. He was dripping like a wet hound in front of the stove and inclined to be truculent. Because the subject of the letter was Richard Tomlinson. The three friends were instantly alert. John Barclay said, An anonymous letter is usually written by a coward. Since the writer hadn't had the nerve to sign his name, I take it the letter was not friendly to Richard. It couldn't have been written by one of us. On the contrary, said Hoos. The letter was written by a friend of Tomlinson who waxed almost maudlin in his attempt to save a fool from his folly. What folly? Demanded the blacksmith. The folly of circulating lies about ghosts in order to conceal the mischief of that wicked girl. Three glances encountered uneasily. Ghosts? Ghosts? Who said anything about ghosts? What mischief are you talking about? The lawyer's keen eyes darted from face to face. This is something you should know better than I. You visit at Timberley, I do not. You doubtless have heard about Tomlinson's wife and the bricks she claims are being thrown at her. Yes, they had heard about Judith's bricks. You must have also heard what Tomlinson is saying about the origin of those bricks. No, this they had not heard. He is saying that the spirit of Abigail Tomlinson, my cousin, is tormenting his second wife. At this statement, even the friends of Richard looked aghast. I don't believe it said Doc Baird. John Barclay said, Richard would never say such a thing. Lucius Goff asked, Is that what the anonymous letter contained? It is. And you thought one of us wrote it? Frankly, Lucius, I suspected you. You've always been interested in that devilish cult of spirit rapping. I thought perhaps you had gone too far and got too frightened by Tomlinson's gullibility. But now I'm convinced that the writer of this letter is more sincere than any of you. I mean, sincere with me. I'm going out to Timberley and get the truth of this matter. The schoolmaster rose from his desk almost in panic. Mr. Hughes, I beg of you, discount this whole business as the idle gossip of a country neighborhood. But even as he was wondering how he might get word to Richard, Lucius leaped blithely into the breach. You say you are going out to Timberley? I am, said Otis Hoos. May I ask when? Tomorrow, if weather permits. Then if you've no objection, I'll ride out with you. I've a birthday gift to take Miss Anne. The rain had stopped, but the streets were a churning mass of thick clay mud when the two men set out from Woodridge the next afternoon. Otis Hoos kept good horses, and they were soon on the gravel road, where the buggy wheels gradually shed the mirror of the town. But travel was slow in the day far spent by the time they turned down the lane between the poplars. 
An overcast sky warned that the storm was not over. Hoos remarked carelessly that they might have to stay the night. The house looked dignified as ever. Lucius scanned the premises, searching for signs of disorder. There were none to be seen. Even the heavy rains had not disturbed the tranquil tidiness of the place. There's a window the bricks went through, purportedly. Who's pointed with a flick of his whip to an east window in the south wing. It had been closed against the rain. The glass pane was intact. There had been no bricks, evidently, since the rain started. The downstairs bedroom, murmured Lucius thoughtfully. The room in which my cousin died, said Who's darkly. From causes that were never satisfactorily determined. She died of membranous croup, didn't she? That's what Caxton put on the death certificate, but he told me himself he found no phlegm in her throat. It was all too plain that the lawyer was seeking to inject a sinister note into the circumstances of Abigail Tomlinson's death. They rang the bell on the front porch. After an interval, the door was opened by Richard's wife. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Won't you come in? The greeting was as cordial as though they had been expected. Otis Hoos, who had long since made up his mind, he did not like the woman who had succeeded his cousin, found himself grudgingly changing his opinion. Lucius glibly explained that they were calling to bring felicitations to Miss Anne on her birthday, and Judith, after showing them into the front room, went to call her mother-in-law. Oh, Miss Anne! Come in, dear, you have company. When Anne Tomlinson appeared, wearing her black alpaca and cameo brooch, it was apparent that some sort of festivity was afoot. If she was surprised to see Otis Hoos, she did not betray it. She greeted both callers hospitably and invited them to remain for her birthday supper. All the floods ever brewed by the Wabash, she said with a twinkle, could not keep the Tomlinson's clan from celebrating her birthday. Even while she chattered with her visitors, married daughters, sons-in-law, and grandchildren began arriving, bearing gifts of homemade delicacies. And while the men joined the group in the front room, the women repaired to the kitchen and took over the business of preparing the feast. Before long, odors seeped through the covered passage that set the men at the front of the house sniffing hungrily. Lucius glanced slyly at Otis Hoos. The lawyer looked somewhat disgruntled. He had not come to Timberley to make Mary, but he could hardly pick a quarrel with Richard while others were doing so. Lucius began to hope that he might be got back to Woodridge without mentioning the object of his call. When Richard appeared, his hope seemed assured. Otis Hoos might be the last person in the world whom Richard would have thought of inviting to Timberley. But when he came unheralded, he was treated as a chosen guest. In the face of such hospitality, Hoos could do no less than respond in kind. Lucius began to relax and enjoy himself. It was Miss Anne's party. She sat in the seat of honor, let her busy hands folded in her lap as placidly as though every nerve were not twitching to know what was going on in her kitchen. It was a time of utter relaxation for Millie, who retired to the chimney corner with her snuff box and let the young folks do as they pleased. 
But not for worlds would Miss Anne have betrayed to her children that she might have preferred an orderly kitchen tomorrow to playing the fine lady tonight. It was the family tradition that she must have nothing to do with the preparation of her own birthday supper. So she sat in the front room, pretending to listen to the men's talk while she tried to figure where she would put all those people to sleep. Cousin Ludy Sims had arrived, which meant that she would have to occupy the big four-poster in the alcove. Thorne could sleep in the trundle, which would release one of the beds in Miss Anne's room. If the weather turned bad so that Lucius and Otis Hoos had to stay, they could have the downstairs bedroom. It was silly to shut that room up simply because Judith had seen a few bricks come through the window. She would speak to Richard about it when she got the chance. But she did not get the chance because his duties as host kept Richard busy. His wife had disappeared somewhere, leaving him to ease the constraint of the lawyer's present and to see that young Will did not get into arguments with his brothers-in-law. Will was at the age when controversial discourse was the only sort in which he was proficient. But Richard did not need any woman, thought his mother, to make people feel at ease beneath his roof. Her eyes followed him as he moved about the room. He was easily the handsomest man present, and he wore his broadcloth suit and linen collar with a careless grace, which even Lucius Goff might envy. Alec Mitchell and Hugh Turner, good men both, always managed to look uncomfortable in their Sunday clothes but no one would ever take Richard for a farmer. When he smiled at her from time to time, her heart swelled with pride and ultimate fulfillment. Another pair of eyes watched Richard as he moved among his guests. Thorne had slept in so unobtrusively that only one person had seen her. She sat on a hassock, quietly, saying not a word because she did not want to be sent out to help in the kitchen or mind the younger children. Only her large eyes moved as they followed Richard about the room, and only Otis Hoos took note of her. Lucius, a time-honored visitor on this occasion, had brought Miss Anne a box of sweets from a Terhout confectioner's. The ribbons and lace paper, the delicate hues of bonbons and candied fruit delighted, and somewhat awed the recipient. My, my, it looks too pretty to eat, she murmured candidly, adding, We won't pass it around till after supper, or it'll spoil people's appetites. So the ornate box was set with other gifts on the shiny new sewing machine, which was the gift of the entire family. It was at this moment that Otis Hoos chose to make a facetious remark. Are you afraid to leave that lying around? The Timberly witch might get it. The merry chatter was instantly stilled. Richard's face flushed ominously. There's no witch at Timberley. I've heard testimony to the contrary. Lucius Goff's black eyes flashed the lawyer a warning threat, but it was blandly ignored. Richard said, If you're referring to the practical joke played at our wedding, I can assure you that has been satisfactorily explained. I'm referring to the letter I received, said Hoos, advising me to investigate more recent mischief in the house and clear my dead cousin's memory by putting the blame where it belongs. 
He had not intended saying this much, but once started, he seemed unable to stop. Richard's flush paled to the cold white of implacable anger. But before he could trust himself to speak, his younger brother had leaped to his feet. You two-faced son of a... Remembering his mother's presence, Will choked back the word. You wolf in sheep's clothing. Come here like a member of our family on mother's birthday, pretending friendship in order to spy on us. You never did like us. Now you see a chance to make trouble for us. I have a mind to throw you out of... Will. Richard found his voice, temporarily lost in astonishment at his brother's tirade. Heretofore, Will had been one of Thorne's accusers. Now he was furiously attacking her enemy. You are forgetting, Will, that Mr. Hughes is our guest. He's no better than a spy. He is a guest and a relative of my children. You will please remember your manners. The lad subsided sulkily, and Otis Hoose was left feeling uncomfortably embarrassed. He muttered something about taking his leave. But rain had set in again, and at this moment it came down in torrents, so that departure was out of the question. He said to Richard, I'm not trying to make trouble for anyone, but as your children's sole maternal relative, I think I have a right to first-hand information about the queer things happening around here. He glanced significantly at Thorne sitting tense and watchful on the hassock. Involuntarily, Richard's hand went out to her protectingly, though he did not touch her. I assure you, nothing has happened worth investigating. You call bricks hurling through a window, disappearing almost as soon as they fall, nothing? The memory of your children's dead mother insulted? Blasphemous talk of her unquiet spirit? All this is nothing, I suppose— to me indicates a mischief-maker who will not rest in the attempt to dishonor the dead. In the uneasy silence which followed, the door opened and Judith came into the room. That she had been listening outside, whose was certain. Her glance went first to him, as though in warning, before it turned upon Richard. And suddenly, intuitively, he knew who had sent him the anonymous letter. He watched with interest as she greeted her husband. I didn't know you had come in, dear. She lifted her face for an expected kiss, and as Richard bent to her lips, other members of the family averted their eyes. Tomlinson's husbands did not kiss their wives before a room full of people. Judith murmured audibly, You still kiss like a bridegroom, darling, and brought a rush of color to his face. There was a slight movement near the fireplace, the swoosh of a door closing, and the hassock was vacant. No one noted Thorne's departure except Otis Hoos and Judith. What's that on your arm? Richard was asking to cover the general embarrassment. A crocheted afghan, Judith explained, which she had made for Miss Anne. She spread it across her mother-in-law's knees, and while Anne Tomlinson examined the gift with genuine pleasure, Judith went gaily to the piano. We must have music when Miss Anne goes out to supper. Will some gentleman be kind enough to give me a little assistance? There was an immediate rush of volunteers to raise the heavy lid of the piano. Miss Anne, looking on with amusement wondered why it was that Hugh and Alec could watch their own wives struggle with a piano top and never lift a finger. 
yet they fairly stumbled over each other to wait on Richard's wife. Men were funny. They were this way or that, according to the woman who had hold of them. Her eyes searched for Richard to share this joke with him, but he had left the room. Judith took her place at the piano, surrounded by attentive males, and turned a sparkling face to her mother-in-law. What shall it be? Tonight is your night, Miss Anne. You must choose the song. And then, before the older woman could reply, Where's Richard? He went out. Miss Anne explained. To look for Thorn, probably. And then she added, Let's sing, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Judith's hand struck a chord, not harshly, which was well, for it was a discordant clash of notes, like teeth grinding against each other. Richard's first remark as he raised his head from saying grace was addressed to his own small sons. This is your cousin Otis, boys. You've grown so tall since he saw you last that perhaps you'd better be introduced. Otis, the young man with the freckles, is Richard. The one with the snub nose is Roger. He performed the introductions with a serocomic twinkle that removed the last trace of embarrassment from the lawyer's presence among them. Thorne had changed her dress. Instead of the drab gray homespun in which she had appeared before supper, she was decked out in a soft, bright, cherry-colored merino with cherry-colored ribbons in her hair. Judith noted the change with disapproval. Thorne, who gave you permission to put on that dress? Go upstairs and take it off. Richard said. I told her to change, Judith. All the other young folks are dressed for a party. This was true. From 16-year-old Nancy Turner to Jane's baby, the young people were dressed up for Miss Anne's birthday. She needn't have put on that dress, Richard. Why not? You say it's too frivolous for church and it's much too nice for school. So it should be just about right for a party, don't you think? Across the long table, husband smiled at wife and invisible rapiers clashed between them. By all means, dear, if you insist upon her wearing the dress, let it be in the bosom of the family. Smiling, Judith appealed to her sisters-in-law. No man knows how to select clothes for girls, does he? Did Richard buy that dress? Kate's eyes rested upon Thorne dubiously, as though questioning her brother's taste. Thorne said quickly, He brought it to me from Terre Haute, and I like it better than any dress I've ever had. She flung a loyal look toward the man at the head of the table, and he smiled back at her. Thorne shares my fondness for colors. The others think we have bad taste. We, we, we. Otis Hoos watched Judith writhe behind her fixed, determined smile. There was a birthday cake so huge that Miss Anne had to stand to cut it. There was Floating Island, which the children loved because it was so pretty. There were nuts and lady fingers and fortunes told in coffee grounds, and then, crowning excitement, there were charades in the front room. The latest amusement had just reached the Timberley neighborhood and was extremely popular with old and young. Judith and Lucius Goff were elected captains, sides were chosen, and the fun began. Judith chose Otis Hoos, Hugh Turner, Jane, Cousin Ludie, Nancy, and Ricky. 
On Lucius's side were Richard, Kate, Alec Mitchell, Jesse Moffat, Thorne, Will, and Jimmy Turner. The younger children and Miss Anne were audience. Judith's side led with a simple noun so obviously enacted that it was guessed immediately. Cousin Ludie, in a rocking chair, held Ricky on her lap while he indulged in an extremely artificial paroxysm of coughing, which ceased when Jane appeared with bottle and spoon and liberally dosed him, presumably with cough syrup. In the second scene, Otis Hoos sat behind a table looking bored but professional and advised Hugh Turner about the legality of a business transaction. When Hugh had agreed to follow his attorney's advice, he inquired how much he owed him. Mr. Hoos replied that his fee was $2. A chorus of voices shouted, Café! When Lucius's troop took the stage, it appeared that something more ambitious was to be offered. Furniture was rearranged, more candles were lighted, and a fair semblance of a hotel lobby was achieved. All the company were on stage, sitting, standing, talking together, while Jesse Moffat wandered among them droning in his best hog-caller's voice. Call for Mr. Jones! Call for Mr. Jones! In a comical imitation of a bellboy. In the midst of this activity, Thorne came in and asked if some lady would lend her a handkerchief. Kate produced a lace-trimmed bit of linen with the admonition to take care of it. Thorne assured her that the borrowed article would not be damaged. Lucius then entered, very dapper with his walking stick and hat, and struck a match to light his cigar. He was about to throw the match away when Thorne stopped him. Don't throw it on the floor. You'll burn the carpet. Frowning dramatically, he looked about for a place to toss the burning match. Thorne said, Let me have it. And taking the match from Lucius, she dropped it, blazing into Kate's dainty handkerchief. And squeezed it up in her hand, Kate cried that her handkerchief was ruined, but Thorne only laughed and shook it out prettily by one corner. The match had disappeared. There was no burn or smudge on the handkerchief. Lucius and Kate cried, It's It's magic! magic. Jesse Moffat shouted, Call for Mr. Jones! The word was magical, but no one bothered to guess. No one was interested in charades anymore. They were interested only in Thorne's magic tricks. She went through her entire little repertoire because no one disapproved and Richard smiled encouragement. Perhaps he had a purpose in it, for Otis Hoos could not fail to see how innocent her little sleight-of-hand performance really was. She plucked cards from the lapels of men's coats and made paper flowers bloom in women's hair. She caused Alex and Will's wallets to change places in each other's pockets and pulled a tiny red ball out of Jane's snood. Each trick brought heartier applause and increased astonishment until she glowed like a rose with her pretty triumphs. Never before had she been allowed to display her talents. Never had she looked so captivating as while mystifying her audience with the old act of Thorndike, the magician. Otis Hoos, standing near Judith, admitted without prejudice that the child was exceedingly clever. She ought to be on stage, he said. Judith agreed. She belongs in a theater, not in a private home. The acid in the words was not lost upon the lawyer. He shrewdly guessed that this second wife of Richard Tomlinson hated the pretty child as violently as had his cousin, 
and the knowledge gave him curious satisfaction. It also oddly lessened his suspicions of Thorn. Jealously, he decided, had prompted the writing of that anonymous letter. It was you who sent the letter, wasn't it? His cold, lit eyes burrowed deep into Judith's. Yes, she admitted, and felt a chill creep down her back as she realized what she had revealed. Now this man knew her weakness. This kinsman of Abigail's knew that she was no stronger, no happier than the woman she had supplanted. You'll know what I mean someday. You don't believe me now? You think I'm crazy? But you'll find out. She turned her head as though someone had spoken, and when she saw no one behind her, she shivered uncontrollably. Someone put a shawl about her shoulders. It was Otis Hoos. He was still beside her. The magic act was over. The men were besieging Thorn, begging for an explanation of her tricks. But she escaped them all and fled to Richard, who laughingly barricaded her with his arms and announced that the show was over. Judith said to the man at her side, You have seen how clever she is. Do you need any further explanation of our witch? Hey everyone, it's Valerie here. I'm the director and narrator of this mystery book by Margaret Eckhart. Have you guessed the title yet? I wanted to give a shout out to all of the cast because some of them played multiple characters. Adam Abrams, he's another Canadian uh, being represented in this book. And he plays old Judge Shane, the twins from Bridgeport, the gatekeeper in episode two, as well as Jimmy Turner. Angel Black, she she has just been amazing. She's filled in all kinds of blanks throughout this book of casts who have one-liners. Here's a list of hers. Bishop's Widow, Martha Shook, Ellie Barkley, Jane Mitchell, Jenny Barkley, Mrs. Pruitt, and Nancy Turner. Ava Eames, she's another audiobook narrator that I've gotten to know over the last few years, and she plays Cousin Ludie. Carolyn Sen plays Miss Anne Tomlinson, who's probably my most favorite character in the book. Thanks, Carol. David Boisvert is my cousin, and he's down in the Nashville, Tennessee area. He started out helping me support the book by playing some of the background music, the piano. He plays a miscellaneous male at the end of the show. He does all of my piano backgrounds except a few. And he also plays the infamous Lucius Goff with his hat tilted just so. Garrett Odell, he plays Will Tomlinson, Richard's brother, the Sentinel editor, and Mr. Fairchild. Jack Hewson, he comes out of Australia and he supports us with Mitch Rucker, Mr. Weatherspoon, and the Pennsylvania Man. Jack Reisider hosts a podcast called Darknet Diaries, which I got to listening to through my husband. Jack plays the voice of Otis Hughes. James Seabrook, he comes out of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and he plays the voice of Dr. Caxton. 
Now, James, he also runs a recording studio called Two Bodies of Water. So check him out. Jason Schnell is the next on our list, and he plays a couple of different roles in this production. He's also a family member as well. So thanks, Jason, for filling in. He reads the Bible readings, and he also plays the role of the drummer salesman. Next up, we have my husband, Jeff Moss. He plays the restaurant manager, and he's also the wonderful voice that introduces all the titles. Jen Davis, she plays two characters, Kate Turner and the miscellaneous female at the end of the story. Joseph Morani Jr., he plays Henry Shook, the neighbor. Kyle Marshall, he's also a local Calgarian. He plays Pete McGraw and Alec Mitchell. Kylie Morgan, one of the stars of this book, she plays Judith Amory. And I'd like to thank Kylie for just hanging in there and really committing to the story over the last couple of years. Next up, we have London Moss. She plays Thorn, or AKA Cricket. She's also my daughter. Matt Sen, who's Carol's husband, he plays the voice of Doc Baird, Richard's dear friend. Next up, we have Peggy Davis, who's Jen's mom, and she plays the voice of Millie. And I just also want to thank Peggy because she was still recording, even though she was moving from one place to another during this production. And then we have Rafe Telsch. And Rafe, thank you very much for all the effort you put into this. Man, some of your performances gave me chills. And just hanging in there as our main character, Richard Tomlinson. And then we have Rain Cruz. Now, Rain is Jen Davis's roommate, or was at the time. And Rain actually does wrestling announcing. She plays the role of Abigail Tomlinson. Next up, we have Rod Schuld, who's also a local Calgarian. He played the role of John Barkley, Richard's dear friend, and the pastor, Brother Jameson. And then we have Sam Sprenger, who started out with just a couple of lines as the miscellaneous man at the school meeting. But then he moved into Jesse Moffat's role. And boy, did he ever do a great job. Um, the last but not least, we have Zane Telsch, who's Rafe's son. He plays the role of Ricky and Raji. So I just wanted to give a shout out to all the cast and all the characters they played. Thank you, everyone, for such a great performance, commitment to this amazing project. Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath called The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show. Did you do anything to the bed? Thorne said. No, I wasn't near it. That's true. Richard turned to Judith. Thorne was at least six feet from the bed when you screamed. And his laughter eased the tension. <laughs> the furniture has not been cutting up, Cousin Ludy. Judith said it did. Personally, I'd take a school ma'am's word against a farmer's any day. I don't see anything. Said who's. Did you hear that noise? Yes, that's what woke me. Damn that moonlight. It blinds me. Look, the window blind. That's what made the noise. 